Good morning. Good morning. The scripture this morning will be from Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39. That's Luke chapter 5, verses 36 through 39. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece of a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new one makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Good morning. I'm a person who likes routine. I like things to kind of go the same way most of the time. I find comfort in routine. Uh, last uh, week, Ellen and I went uh, to celebrate our 47th wedding anniversary. We went up to the mountains. We go to the same place every year. We go up to Blue Jay, Twin Peaks. We stay in the same, generally the same location. <clears throat> we go to the same lake. We go to the same restaurants. We hit the little movie theater in Blue Jay. We do the same thing. I find it comforting. I just find it, it just kind of, it works for me. I get up every weekday morning. And there's a routine, and I won't give you all the details, but one of them ends up in the living room, me in a chair, Ellen in the chair across, and we're doing our daily Bible reading. We just That's just part of our routine. I like routines. When I go out to the restaurants, typically, if it's left up to me, I go to the same restaurants. Every time I go out to eat, I generally order the same meal almost every time at those restaurants. And some of you know what those meals are that I get. The elders go out for breakfast before we meet in the mornings in the week. We go to the same restaurant every time, and all those guys order the same gruel every week. <clears throat> we call it gruel. On the menu it says oatmeal, but it, it looks like gruel. It looks like, you know, uh, last week I, what did I do? I, I did something totally out of the ordinary and got chicken fried steak and eggs. And it's a lot better than gruel, so maybe, but I do, I, I like that comfort. I like um, I like routine. I like tradition. And when we started our life groups, the only thing I could think of, well, it wasn't the only thing I could think of, but no more popcorn on Sunday night. Sunday night after church, we go home, we watch 60 Minutes, we eat this huge bowl of popcorn. Now I have to have dinner with a bunch of Christian brothers and sisters instead. But, uh, but on the fourth Sunday night, I get to have popcorn again. So uh, I always look forward to those fourth Sundays. But we kind of like routine in the church, don't we? Routine, tradition, you like familiarity. <sighs> Excuse me, but we didn't stand during the song before the lesson today. I don't know what's going on with Chris. I, he is this trailblazer. But, we, uh, but we, like, we like things to be the same. We like to know the order of worship, how it's going to go. A couple of weeks ago, we had an interesting moment here. Because we have two families coming together that have two different traditions in our assembly. And I don't know, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we got to a point and everybody was just sitting here. Nobody was getting up to do the next thing. Nobody knew what was next on the, on the program because we were merging these two families. And it was a little unsettling for just a moment as different people were standing and getting down. And we finally we figured it out and we got through the service. But we like, we, we just kind of like it. It tends toward that. There's nothing wrong with being a person who likes routine or tradition, nor is there anything wrong with being a person who likes spontaneity. But when it comes to our lives, and when it comes especially to the church, it's so very important that the things we like and the routines and the traditions that we have do not become obstacles 
to the will of God or to the coming of his kingdom in this world. Because when Jesus comes, as we see in Scripture, and we ought to see in our own lives, when Jesus comes, Jesus comes to do something new. Jesus brings the kingdom of God to this earth. It's meant to shake things up. It brings something new. And the same thing happens in an individual's life when they answer the call to follow Jesus. Our text today in Luke chapter 5 centers about this, starting with the call of one of the apostles of Jesus. Luke chapter 5, verse 27, the call of Levi. And it reads, After this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." This passage begins with an amazing call, a radical call from Jesus to Levi. This man is just sitting there at work in his tax booth collecting taxes and Jesus walks up to him and just says, follow me. Jesus expects him at that very moment to get up and to walk away and to set out after Jesus. And I'm thinking, if I'm sitting there in that tax booth and I'm, the thoughts that would be going through my mind, get up now, this is my job, this is how I make my money. Get up and follow you now and survive how? And make a living how? And, and, and what in the world is this going to do to my life if I just get up and leave? And, and yet, and it's so shocking in a sense, isn't it? I mean, even though we've read it so many times, Matthew just gets up and he walks away from everything. To follow Jesus. And I'm thinking, do you suppose something a little bit new started to happen in his life this day? Think about his relationships, his, his work, his, everything that's going on in his life, his values, where he's going to be headed from this moment on. And we recognize Jesus is doing something new in Matthew's life. And he responds to it. He throws a big banquet in Jesus' honor to invite all of his friends to come over to just experience at least the joy that he's having. Because even though there's a whole lot we don't know about Levi, and we're not sure how he may have known Jesus before or whatever, we do know this. Levi's now found a place with God. He's found acceptance through Jesus in the kingdom of God. And his life is forever changed. And he is overjoyed at this change. And as he celebrates at this new found purpose that he has, there's a complaint that's raised by the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the folks that have separated themselves out from others to, to follow very closely the traditions of the Jews and the Jewish fathers. And they address the disciples of Jesus... <clears throat> And they basically say, what kind of teacher do you have that he eats with tax collectors and sinners? Luke introduces two themes at this particular moment in the gospel that are repeated over and over again. And they'll be familiar to you as I point them out. You know them already. The first of all is the theme of Jesus welcoming the outcast. Because in the gospel of Luke, this happens over and over and over and over again. The outcast here is first of all Levi, the tax collector. 
And we know enough about tax collectors in the first century that these people were genuinely not respected, oftentimes hated by their own countrymen because they collected tax money from Israel, Israelites, Jews, and gave it to the oppressive Roman government. They were also known at times for extortion and cheating, and so they did not have a high reputation. And they were looked down upon, especially by those who took any kind of holiness and called the holiness serious in their life, like the Pharisees did. They're also here the sinners. Luke will mention the sinners ten times. It's just kind of this category, kind of undefined category, of people who seem to have the reputation of just willfully breaking the law of Moses. Sometimes the prostitutes get thrown in with the sinners. They're just not very careful about things. And the tax collectors and the sinners get lumped together as these socially deplorable people that have no place in society, especially in a religious society that honors God. And then Jesus later in the book will add to this group of outcasts the Samaritans. And then the lepers and those that can't be touched and have to be pushed away. Throughout the gospel, Jesus continues to welcome the outcast. This is something new. And it's what Jesus is doing. The second theme that's introduced here is that of table fellowship. Read through the Gospel of Luke sometime and just look for how many times people sit down and eat. It's amazing. I think that's where we get our potlucks from, Tim, is from the Gospel of Luke. But there's a lot of eating that goes on around tables in the book of Luke. And table fellowship is about who you like and who you get along. It's not just about, well, I had I shared a meal with someone. It, this is about intimacy. It's about belonging. It's about being socially acceptable. It's about being on kind of the same level playing field. And most meals, of course, in, these, in this time are eaten in someone's home with their family or an extended family. These are people who are in the same social status, people with whom you would share the same values and be very comfortable with. It wasn't like everybody went out to restaurants after synagogue, you know, on, on Sabbath or something like that. There weren't a lot of restaurants. There were banquets. People invited people into, their, into one another's homes. And, of course, there are, civic, there are meetings in civic places like temples and, and civic buildings during the first century. But you would eat only with the people that were in your social group. If you're hosting a dinner... If you're inviting people to your home, you will invite only those who are socially, religiously, and economically your equals. You will not be inviting anyone lower than that, because to do so will bring shame upon your household and uh, upon yourself. And you will, by the way, have them seated according to a particular social status that everyone knows, though nobody really talks about. The Pharisees have about the strictest standards you could imagine, even that, uh, perhaps even equal to or surpassing that of a priest when it came to their table fellowship. And not many people got invited over to dinner, I would dare say. And we find them being very exclusive about whom they will eat with. On the other hand, Jesus, Jesus invites everybody to the table. Jesus is inclusive. He calls everybody to come and to share the feast. And he does so because he's calling them to the kingdom, to the reign of God. He's calling them to repentance and to, to become followers of himself. 
This is a source of hostility and criticism between Jesus and the Pharisees throughout the Gospel of Luke and, all, and the other Gospels as well. This is a big point of contention. And stop and think about it for just a moment. Because Jesus intentionally violates the eating traditions of the Pharisees every time. In this case, it's by eating with the wrong people. He's eating with the wrong crowd. Oh, but he also eats with unwashed hands. And he also teaches you that you should long to serve rather than to be served. And he also points out that this whole status thing around the table has got to go. And then he has the gall to tell you, hey, when you have your banquet, don't invite your friends. Don't invite the family. Don't invite the people who can pay you back. You go out and you find people who are sick and disabled. You find people that are below your social status. You find the beggars. You bring them around your table. You bring people into your table that can never do anything for you. Except perhaps give you a bad reputation with somebody else. And you can see how this hostility grows. This Every time Jesus sits down to eat in the Gospel of Luke, it's essentially an acted-out parable of the nature of the kingdom of God, which is about opening the doors and spreading a tablecloth on a wide table that invites everyone to come in to know the Lord and to have their lives made new. And every time we find Jesus eating, we find those themes of grace and newness and acceptance. And so at this point in our story... The first time this happens in the Gospel of Luke, the Pharisees are absolutely livid. And they're saying, these are people that don't belong at this table. These should not be here. What kind of a teacher do you have who would sit at a table with these folks and eat a meal with them? And they can't imagine how somebody who's always been on the outside all of a sudden has found a place at the table. And Jesus' answer to them is more than just a, a frivolous answer. It really defines his mission because he says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I'm here to heal broken people. I'm looking for people who are in need, people who are desperate for God, people who think there's no other, there's no way for them. I'm looking for those people who understand the need that they have, and I'm calling them to repentance, to change in their life, to a new way of life, and a way that will be fueled by the grace of God that comes in Jesus in the kingdom. And Jesus knows those people who think they're respectable, those people who think they're okay, are not going to listen to these words of Jesus or find his table inviting. It's not that there are any righteous. It's not that there are any who are not sick. But sometimes we think we're just the respectable good people who don't need quite as much help. And that's the boat in which the Pharisees find themselves. And so this is going on in this dinner. And this is different and it's new and it's unsettling. And it's breaking the traditions that they're used to. And so they take this opportunity to bring up another problem that they found with Jesus already in these early days of his ministry. In verse 33, they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? 
The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Fasting, of course, was only commanded among the Israelites on the Day of Atonement, but there were traditions among the Pharisees who apparently fasted a couple of times a week. John, John's uh, whole ministry is around repentance and fasting and so forth. But Jesus' answer to them is, is, look, fasting today, fasting right now, is about as appropriate as mourning at a wedding. And you may have been to some weddings where maybe, you, you know, I'm, I'm not, but you know what I'm getting. Generally speaking, when you go to a wedding, what do you do? You celebrate. It's happy. It's a fun time. And Jesus is saying, this is a day of celebration. Do you see what's going on in Matthew's life or Levi's life? Do you understand what's happening here? And one of these days I'm going to be gone, and then my disciples will fast. Fasting's good. Fasting's a wonderful spiritual discipline. My, my followers will do it in an appropriate time. But this is a day for feasting. This is a day for celebration. Because Levi has found new life in the kingdom of God. And then, Jesus tells them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. If you have a hole in your shirt, you don't go buy a new shirt. Cut a piece of cloth out of it, and then try to sew it on your old shirt. If you've ever done that, it was not a wise move. <laughs> you should have just got the new shirt. Let the old shirt go. It, it, it's, you know, you're ruining both, essentially. You're ruining the new shirt, and it's not going to look very good on the old one either. And the same thing with the wineskins. You don't get new wine and put it into old wineskins. I don't know a whole lot about that, but I know... From what Jesus says, you do that, those things are going to burst. They're not going to be able to maintain that. And the wine's going to be gone and the wineskins are going to be destroyed. He says, no, you need to put new wine into new wineskins, into fresh wineskins. And the point of the parable is this. The new, in some regards, and specifically in the regards raised in this story, the new is incompatible with the old. And this is the crux of the matter in this story. What's Jesus doing? Here in this story and in his ministry, he is ushering in the kingdom of heaven. This is something new. He brings a new word. He celebrates. He doesn't fast. He, he doesn't build his life around ritual and traditions of the fathers, but rather he focuses on human need and the need of the souls that he meets. He doesn't shun the outcast. He welcomes them. He offers mercy and grace, not the condemnation that the religious leaders of Israel were offering at the time. Jesus is not concerned with drawing a line and keeping people out. Jesus throws the doors wide open and invites everybody inside. And that's something new. 
This flies in the face of the tradition of the Pharisees. And let's just face it. These people in this kind of extreme case are more concerned with their ritual purity and maintaining their traditions that give them a sense of self-righteousness and superiority because that's what the the maintenance of these traditions do. That is more important to them than the broken lives and the souls of people who do not know God. They are more concerned with their status. They're more concerned with guarding the gates, withdrawing the lines, with saying who's in and who's out, that they don't really invite anybody in. There really is not very much way open for people to come in. They cannot accept what Jesus is doing. They cannot accept the inbreaking of the kingdom of God because of their rigidity, because of their inflexibility, because of the way that their entire identity is tied up in traditions and the keeping of them that gives them meaning and value. And if we take the words of Jesus in the parable and kind of push him back on this scene, you can't take a few of Jesus' words and kind of patch up the thinking of the Pharisees. It's just not going to work. These things are incompatible with one another. They're incompatible. Nor can the forms and the rituals and the traditions of the Pharisees hold the dynamic new wine of the kingdom of God that Jesus brings. There's an incompatibility. There's no coming together. There's no compromise about this. The force of the kingdom of God coming into the world is not something that can be shaped or contained by anything that's preceded it. Because in Christ, God is doing something new. This is the inbreaking of the kingdom. This is the coming of the days of the new covenant and salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ. This is God opening up the doors to all flesh and inviting them in to His kingdom for salvation. And, and the new wine just requires new wineskins. It just simply does. And the question for them, and the question for us... Can my life contain the new things that Christ does? Can my mind be open to the things that Jesus does in this world? The newness that He brings? Or do I find myself so tied to the things that are old that I don't make room for the coming of the kingdom even today? I didn't read the last verse. I'm going to read that now. Because I think Jesus challenges us here in two ways. In a sense, He challenges us as the church. Uh, although we're individuals in the church, let's look, first of all, kind of as, as the church and then individually. Because verse 39, at first when you read verse 39, it's like, well, how does this fit? Well, he's just talking about this great new wine and how the old wineskins can't hold it and every, you know, the, this new thing that's coming. But he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. That's the Pharisees. And I can admit 
that I can identify with verse 39. Because I like the old. The old's good. The old's good. Yeah. The past, the way it was, the church, the way we did it, it was good. That was good. I get this. I understand. I, I understand this. We can become so nostalgic for the way things were. The familiar. The, 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 the comfortable. And this is simply a tendency that develops maybe, maybe in some people more than others, but it's a very general temptation and tendency, and especially where things like faith and religion are involved. We just tend to long for things that are old. We tend to long for things that are in the past. It's just kind of the way that it happens. And Jesus knows this, and He's talking to the Pharisees, and He goes, I, you're, you want the, you're ready to keep the old wine. You say the old wine's good, or some translations say the old wine's even better. And, and, and it's like you're, not able to, you're just not able to, to take in what I'm doing. And I admit that there are times when I understand this from my own, from my own perspective and what I like and what I prefer. As someone who can look back over almost 70 years of traditions in the church and feel quite comfortable with all of them, thank you very much. You know, that's kind of where I was. That's how I grew up. But the truth is, and we know this, is that there are times when the church held on to its traditions in ways that made us feel superior and self-righteous and in ways that barred entrance to the kingdom for others. There have been times, there have been times when we've been so concerned with the maintaining of traditions that we really, we didn't really seem to care a whole lot about the hurting, lost, desperate people in the world. And it's not that we would have said such a thing, of course, but it's, it's something that you can see in the way we did things at times. I can look back on times when ministries were not allowed to take place in a church that could have resulted in the salvation of lost people because something about that ministry violated a policy or a tradition in the church, even when everyone in the church would recognize that those traditions were not biblical. And some of us have had to repent of such things, haven't we? I mean, I'm in this group. I remember as a teenager watching the preacher where I grew up take on a fella who was a new convert, a grown man, a new convert, because he came to church that Sunday morning, he was going to serve at the Lord's table, and he wasn't wearing a suit and tie. And in front of the rest of us, he was torn into because of the way he was dressed. I've seen, I've seen stuff. I mean, some of us have. And we've repented of that, and as we should have. We, we, we should. Because, but we have got to admit, for most of us, at any point in time, it is, it is the tendency that we have to become rigid and inflexible. It is me. Let me just confess that. It is me. One of the most amazing things I've witnessed in the Newland family in the last six months is an openness to the new. 
And I just want to say, I praise God for that. Every day when I pray, I praise God for the unity of the Newland family who it's like, oh yeah, we just kind of sold our church building. I know it's just a piece of property, but when you've been somewhere for like, since the call of Abraham, and you move out, it's a big deal. It's a really big deal. And it's like, where are we going? Well, I don't know. Maybe Irvine, maybe Garden Grove, maybe, who knows, Huntington Beach. It's like, okay, yeah, let's do it. And I know, because of conversations and things that have been said, it's, I know it's because... We've all united in the idea that we just feel like God is moving us in a way where we can be more effective in the kingdom and that we can find, we can find ways to reach out and maybe new people that we will have around us that we can reach out to. It's all about that. It's, it's, that's what it's, that's the direction of it. And for the Ball Road family, my oh my, what you all have taken on, uh, to welcome us and I, every, every, you know, every week, I just keep thinking, I hope they don't regret it yet. I hope they don't regret it yet. But you, you talk about something new. You've just let us come in. We've got an office back there. You let us teach and preach. And, and this is your home. This is your family. And so let me just say, in terms of being open to new things like that, way to go, Ball Road and Newland Street family. I guess we need to say Newland family. We don't have a street anymore. We've lost the street. But it's still there, but we've lost it. Um, but that's just, that, that is notable and, and, uh, and it's praiseworthy in, in, in the sense of understanding what's happening there. We've got to keep that going. As we do move into the future, as we do find a place, and especially as we start something new, it's going to be different. It's going to look different. The ministries may be different. I don't have anything in mind today, any kind of earth-shaking thing. You know the elders. You know the teachers and preachers. You know we're not talking about newness of doctrine or newness of gospel or anything such as that. But we, we have to have that kind of spirit that this is, this is, this is a shift. This is an opportunity for a major shift. And, and whatever we need to do to, to be to open up the doors of the kingdom and usher people in underneath the rule of Jesus Christ as Lord, we need to be ready to do that, whatever it looks like. I'm, talking, you, I'm not going to give all the disclaimers, okay? You know what I'm getting at. You know what I'm saying. That we have to be open to the new things that God might be due, uh, might do through us. The question is not, is it old, is it new? The question is, is it effective? Does it glorify God? Does it usher people into His kingdom? Those are, those are the questions that we, that we ask. And are we able, am I able, to contain that newness within myself and be a part of it? The other challenge that, that I just see in this text so strongly is the very personal challenge of the call of Jesus on our lives. That's what the text is all about for, from Levi's point of view. When Jesus says to Levi, follow me, he's saying to him, at this moment, everything in your life is about to change. Everything is going to be new. And Levi gets up and goes. And I think of how confrontational that is. 
as Jesus is saying to Levi, look, I know how long it's taken you to get in this position. I know how I, I know what you paid to get the job you've got. I know how much wealth means to you. I, I understand all the guff you've taken through the years to finally get in a position where you're making a lot of money and you, in your own little world, you've got it all carved out and you've invested a lot in it and you feel pretty good about where you've gotten. And I know that right now to get up and walk away from all that makes no earthly sense in the world to you. But I'm saying to you, Levi, get up, follow me, leave it all, follow me. He is not there to patch up Levi's life. The old life and the new life are incompatible. He's not there to patch it up. He's not, make, he's not there to make a change here and there to urge Levi to give maybe a little more of his time or his money. He is saying to Levi, I'm calling you right now to reject your own will, to surrender yourself and everything you are and possess to my Lordship, to have your values, your life completely turned upside down, And live under the reign of God as your king. Now come on, let's do it. That's what he's saying yes to. It's not to be just a little bit better person. Just be, I'll be a little nicer to folks now. We're talking about something that is drastic. And the same thing is true for you and me. Jesus doesn't want to patch up your life. Because frankly, we can't be patched up. Because we're dead, we're hopeless, we're desperate, we're rebellious, we're lost, we're sinners. Sometimes we forget there are no respectable people. There are no respectable people who just lean a little tweak here and a little tweak there, and then they're going to be just right to be followers of Jesus. There are no respectable people. That's the mistake that the Pharisees made. That's why they had all the problems they had, because they thought they were the respectable people. And then they see Jesus opening up to these folks. It's like, what's up with that? And they don't, they don't understand what's happening. There are no respectable people. That's the point. None of us are respectable. Nobody needs just a little change. Oh, you just need to, you know, you want to become, I just give up smoking. Or stop using that language you use sometimes. That's all it's going to be. Jesus says, that won't do. You've got to die. Your ego, your will, you have got to die. All of that's got to be gone. It's got to be obliterated. You may be a a nice person or whatever, but I'm talking about death. This is what conversion is. It is death and rebirth by the Holy Spirit into a new way of life that changes everything about us. Everything about our priorities, our money, our lifestyle, everything is changed. Because we have a Lord now. We, we have, it's, it's this complete newness that Christ calls us to. And Jesus doesn't want just to reform us. He wants for us to die, to be buried with Him, to be raised with Him, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and to be new creatures. And I was pretty sure the Scripture said, all things are new in Christ. He wants us to be new. And he says to you and me, I know you've spent a lifetime building who you are and what you are in your little world. And it it may not mean a whole lot to somebody else, but it's your world and it's what you've been after. And it's where you put your values. But I'm saying to you, you need to get up and you need to walk away from it. 
You need to follow me. You need to die. And let me bring you to life again. And give you a new life. And a new spirit. And I know it goes against all of your instincts. But I'm calling you to get up. And to begin to live your life under the reign of God. Many people are too afraid to let go of what they mistakenly believe gives them meaning and value. Too afraid of what such a radical commitment might mean to their life that they turn away. And in so doing, they miss the forgiveness and the newness and the acceptance of God and the new life in Christ. But then you have people like Levi. What a story. What a guy. I mean, the little that we know about him who discerns the true riches that Christ has offered him in the kingdom and abandons Abandons his life. Now, he's going to have to go to work. He's going to have to take care of some business. I understand that. But it's like things are new today. I'm, I, I'm, Christ is Lord. Whatever, the, however that's going to work out in my life, that's going to be okay. And in so doing, you find that joy and that acceptance and that newness in the kingdom of God. What an amazing Savior we have who opens up such possibilities to us. If you haven't started to follow Jesus yet, or maybe you're just taking those early steps, we would encourage you to listen to His call. To do what He called everybody to do. Repent. We've got, change. We've got to turn our lives, or we've got to change our hearts and minds and, and submit our wills to God. And then we can... Through faith in His blood that was shed for us on the cross, we can die with Jesus Christ. We can be raised up with Jesus Christ as we're baptized into Him for the forgiveness of our sins. The Holy Spirit Himself giving us new life, newness, as we devote ourselves committed to the life that Christ calls us to live in the kingdom of God and find the joy and that sense of celebration and life that Jesus brings and for those of us who've made that decision, perhaps today is a day for us to, to stop for a moment and to see if we've kind of been falling back into our own past. Maybe in the way that we've been thinking about the kingdom or about Christ's call upon our own life. And let's determine that as we follow Jesus, we'll continue to be open to whatever it might be in our lives, something new that He calls us to do in the kingdom. Something unexpected that we might not have imagine and to see his power at work in his church and in his people i'll tell you it is a joy and a blessing and an adventure and a celebration to follow jesus as we sing together today let us pledge that we will follow him and if there are any among us who need to make changes in your life today to follow him more completely we invite you to come help. Let us know how we can serve you. Let's stand as we sing.